Let's open in prayer. Yahweh, we just thank you again for another day. We thank you for another chance to get into your word and study it. And we just cry out to you and um, ask you for the Holy Spirit to work in us. Give us clarity of mind, calm our thoughts, allow us to focus on your word, your truth. We thank you that you transcend all things and that you have prepared this word of God um, hundreds, thousands of years ago for us at this moment, knowing that we would go into it. And you have set things up in our lives and prepared us for this moment. And so I just pray that we be open to your spirit and your voice only, um, to what your words are saying, and ultimately um, how to chew on it, digest it, make it a part of us, allow it to transform and renew us, and then um, allow it to make us a new creature so we can be as Christ-like as possible to those that we encounter. In Jesus' name, amen. My encouragement, my urging to you is, I know that a lot of, for some of you, this feels like a lot of information every night. And that's okay. That's good. Um, can you imagine being the early Hebrews where you actually sat down and read this thing in one sitting and you understood a lot of it because it was your culture? Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of conviction going on. So my encouragement to you is if you feel like you don't have the First Testament background to digest a lot of this, and you feel like a lot of things are going in your head, don't worry. These books are a lifetime pursuit. And there's, it's, there's always things that all of us are going to miss. And that's why we dive back in again and again and again. But at the same time, I pray that that would give you a thirst and a desire to go back into things that have maybe become familiar and repetitive to you over the years, but maybe that now this is giving you a new perspective, a new insight on how to understand things. Um, Not that I'm the only source, but if you don't know where to begin, I have gone through the entire First Testament and the audio on my website, Um, both an overview looking at the major themes and some really in-depth verse-by-verse going through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so on. So if you feel like you need more of a background... For those of you who have a good background and feel like this is still overwhelming, then once again, welcome to studying the Bible and pray that this is taking you. But the other thing I would like to say is this. I don't know where you are, so I mean no offense on this because some people are way better at this than others. We all come from different backgrounds, so I'm just speaking, assuming that you're not. But this is what it means to study. And unfortunately, in this pinball machine America that we live in, we are blinded by so many lights, so many distractions, and we're moving so quick as the paddles are just knocking us around so mindlessly. We have lost the art of just sitting by the fire, knowing that the electricity doesn't work, and all I have is a candle and I need to go to bed, and there's nothing else to do on the farm of really what it means to just sit and think and contemplate and read the Word of God. And so I would encourage you that even with myself, I, I grew up with a learning disability. Things are hard for me to grasp the first time. And I spent a lot of time. D.A. Carson has helped me understand the typology in the book of Hebrews a lot. He's got a four-hour lesson that I listened to, I think, eight times. And the eighth time I took notes, and then I worded them in my own words. I mean, this is just what I have to do to process things. So... I would encourage you to not get discouraged if you don't feel like you're absorbing it all because welcome to being human. 
But I also would urge you and encourage you that it's okay to listen to it multiple times. In fact, it's necessary um, to open your Bibles, listen to it in the car, listen to it again. A lot of times when I read a book or even when I listen, I have to listen to it, read it a couple of times, and then I underline, and then I write up and type up everything that I underline. Just And then I have to like spew it all out on my wife some morning or night before bed so that I can process it mentally before things really start sinking it in. It is a process. And so I would just encourage you, don't be discouraged if you're not getting it all the first time. But also sit down and ask God to reveal to you times that you can actually start listening to this stuff multiple times because that's just what's required. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you if you start doing this, then when you start listening to other people, you'll start having things to snap it into. For a long time, I would go to seminary and I would listen to these professors and I would be like, I'm not worthy. Like, oh my gosh, this is like so much there. I will never, ever be able to get to this point. And I felt like I was just learning this stuff here and here and here and here and here. And I began to realize that after a long time of studying, I mean, four years of Bible classes in college, four years in seminary, three years of my own study on my own, and and in a master's, it was like committed. <laughs> That's all you did. You had no social life. All of a sudden, after a couple of years, after graduating with my master's, dots started connecting. And I began to realize after these, and I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And I began to realize that dots can't connect until you have enough dots. And so... And I realized I spent a lot of time just learning all the dots. And then when they started connecting, that's... Not that it wasn't cool before, but that's when it became really phenomenal and really amazing. And so I would encourage you, if... And believe me, even... There are times that I... I mean, my wife and I read through the Bible. I told you that. But there are some nights that's just like, okay, (laughs) I just read a bunch of words. So even me with the seminary degree and that kind of stuff, there are times where I'm just reading the Bible... And I feel like I'm just reading the Bible, and that's it. And I nothing digested, nothing went in, until about a couple weeks later, and all of a sudden, boom, everything's just, I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I just took that one passage in Peter to connect the last couple months of reading, but if I hadn't had those recently, that would have never happened. And so I would encourage you, if you feel like you're not getting a lot of those aha moments, then maybe it's just you don't have enough dots yet. And I would encourage you, just keep persevering. Just keep persevering. And God will reward you here and there and there. And then one moment, they'll just all just start snapping. And you feel like everything you learn is just snapping into place. And you find the right places to go to. So that's just my encouragement to you of a lifetime of study. And I know that many of you have many more years than me. Um, but I also know that we're all... We've all given up at different times, and God has had to encourage us to restart up again at different times. So this is just my encouragement to you. I pray this class is a reuniting of that spark if you feel like that you've dwindled off a little bit. We are in Roman numeral 2, the superiority of God's rest found in Jesus Christ. We are now going to be focused, we have focused on Jesus Christ as a Son of God, and now as the high priest, both as the God and the man, and why all four of those aspects are so crucial to understand the typology. Now, from this point on, we're not going to do as much page turning into the First Testament and all that kind of stuff. 
So we're going to start camping out in one place and staying there for a while. So hopefully you won't feel so like bam, bam, bam all over the place now. But he's laid the foundation. Now we're ready for... You cannot truly appreciate your rest in God if you don't appreciate the God that you're supposed to rest in. And so now that he's established this amazing Jesus Christ as the Son of God and High Priest, the the God-man, now he's going to begin to encourage you that there is a rest that is far better than resting in any other philosophy or religion out there that you've ever been a part of. And so that's what we're diving into. So in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, partners in a heavenly calling, take note of Jesus the Apostle and High Priest whom we confess, who was faithful to the one who appointed him, as Moses was also in God's house. For he has come to deserve greater glory than Moses, just as the builder of a house deserves, deserves greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. We are his house if, in fact, we hold firmly to our confidence and hope we take pride in. So he starts off with Christ is superior to the angels because the angels are the beginning. They're the first thing that God created and He used them to mediate the law to the people. But the angels mediated the law to Moses who mediated it to the people. And so now He's ready for the next step, Moses. And I cannot overestimate the importance of Moses and Judaism. The, the two most important figures in all of Judaism is Moses and Abraham. And Moses by far probably outshines, um, literally and metaphorically, Abraham. Because Moses was the, Abraham was a friend of God, which is only a couple other people in the Bible that are ever called that. He was the, fa- the father of the Jewish people. But Moses, God made it very clear that I talked to Moses face to face unlike anyone else. And, and by face to face, obviously he couldn't literally stand the presence of God, but that's that idea of intimacy. I have, I've had a more intimate relationship with Moses than any other human. And Moses is responsible for communicating the will of God to the people probably more than any other person. And most specifically for the Jew, the law, the Mosaic Covenant. For the Jew was the most important thing. So important that it actually became more important than God to them by the time the Pharisees came along. They actually came to the point where they were thinking, even God obeys the Sabbath. So that's how important the law is. So, And Moses was the giver of the law. So we're talking about one of the most important figures in all of Jewish history. And there's very few mistakes or sins recorded about him. And even then, when you read it, you feel like, that's it? I've done worse than that. Um, So Moses is this incredible figure, so incredible that when he did talk to God face to face, his face literally began to shine like the sun because he absorbed so much of the glory of God. 
So much so that when he talked to the people, when he had a normal relationship with people, he had to put a veil over his face. Can you imagine every time you have a relationship with somebody now, you have to put a veil over your face because your relationship with God is that good. Everything else just compels, pales in comparison. So he's the most important figure here. And now the author is going to have the audacity to say, Jesus is better. Now to the Jew, that's scandalous. But the other reason this is so important is because Deuteronomy makes it very clear that the one who comes, like Moses, is the Messiah. And so they were looking for a figure that was going to be as great, if not greater, than Moses. And when Jesus came, he didn't quite look it to them. Now granted, his miracles were far more stupendous than anything else that any other prophet had ever done. But at the same time, he didn't really command the people. He didn't really have that presence that they think that they had looked for. And you have to realize, too, I think they build Moses up even bigger than what he really was, too. And so I don't know if anybody, I don't even God, could have matched up to that if he came in all of his glory to what they were expecting. And so he's going to make the point that Jesus is better than Moses. So he starts off with this, though, therefore. Remember, the therefore is there for a reason. Therefore, in light of everything we talked about once again, and the last thing we just left off with was that Jesus stands in the midst of us and is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. We as sinners, and he who had no sin, is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters as he stands in our midst. Therefore, in light of that, you holy brothers and sisters, partners in the heavenly calling, take note of Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. That's significant. You are holy brothers and sisters. You are set apart from the world and connected to this Jesus, this great Jesus who's better than the angels. And you are partners in the heavenly calling. That's significant. To be a partner is standing side by side as equal authorities over a company or an organization or institution. And so he's saying that you are a partner with Christ. You partner with the calling that God has with you the same way that He had for Christ. And so this gives you incredible worth. Incredible worth. Allah never says that of the Muslims that serve Him. The Hindu gods never say that. There, there is nothing where a God literally lifts you up as an equal to Him and says you are a partner. And by equal, I don't mean like equality and attributes in essence, but in that calling and sitting at the right hand of God, of the inheritance of having worth. Jesus is the apostle and high priest. These are two words that aren't ever put together. Apostle means to be sent by God. To to be sent by God with a very specific mission, but more than that, apostle has the idea to be invested with the authority of God. That what you say is what God says. It's the same idea as prophet. The high priest is the idea of having the mediator to be going between God and humans. The responsibility of connecting humans to God in a relationship. 
And so Jesus is the ultimate authority who's been sent by God, who has the ability to bring us closer to God, to write that relationship with Him. Whom we confess, this is very important, the one that you confess. For, for them in the ancient world, confession is leaving you all your old way of thinking and adopting the new way of thinking, even to the point of betting your life on it. You're giving up the old lifestyle that your old thinking led you into. To confess something doesn't mean like, I just confess. It's saying that I have completely and utterly placed my life on this truth and I will live accordingly to it. So how are you partners in the calling? Because you're committed to this confession. What is the confession? That Jesus is sent by God with the authority to make you right with God. All those chains are important. This is why there's a bunch of commas. Because this is one idea all connected together. Who is faithful to the one who appointed him? He was faithful. We've already made that point. To the one that appointed him. The one that commanded him and sent him is the one that he obeyed. Now this is important. As Moses was also in God's house. So the first thing he starts off with is a comparison. Just as Moses was faithful, so is Jesus. Now this is very important. Because the author nowhere is ever going to degrade or devalue Moses. If the author really wanted to make how significant Jesus was, he could say, well, you know Moses. He sinned in the wilderness and he lost the promised land. That's how pathetic he is. But Jesus, he never stopped being faithful. Or he could say, as Paul does, Moses' glory faded. And every time he began to fade, he had to get back in the presence of God. But Jesus' glory never fades because he is the radiance of God's glory. But he doesn't knock Moses. He doesn't tear him down because the reality is Moses was faithful to God and God honors faithfulness. God rewards faithfulness. And he doesn't, he remembers your sins no more because they're forgiven. So he doesn't drudge up the lack of faithfulness of Moses. Instead, he says Jesus was faithful like Moses. Right? But at the same time, you look even more significant if there's somebody else next to you who is as strong. For example, if you put Arnold Schwarzenegger in a room, you would say, wow, he's really strong. But if you put Arnold Schwarzenegger next to somebody who looks just as strong as him, and Arnold Schwarzenegger is able to defeat him, then he looks really strong. And we mentioned this before. If you, if you see somebody like helping a little old lady across the street, they look really generous. But if you see somebody helping a little old lady across the street and they're giving a million dollars and taking him out to lunch and then they look really generous. You don't look as generous when the person is pathetic. Okay? If you see a scumbag that treats everybody like crap and you put somebody nice to them, it's like, okay, he's nice and he's really bad. Of course, anybody would be nice compared to this guy. So by lifting up Moses, not only does God honor Moses because that's the kind of God he is, but he also, Jesus looks even greater when Moses is seen as something very significant. And so this is what he starts with. Moses was faithful, and this is important, in God's house. The preposition here is in the house of God. 
For he has come to deserve greater glory than Moses, just as the builder of a house deserves greater honor than the house itself. Now, why does Jesus deserve greater glory and honor than Moses? Because Moses was a servant in the house. And Jesus was faithful over the house. And this is the point here. He's using the word house and builder. And this word can either mean house, can mean they're either a physical house, or sometimes also used of the temple, or it can be used of a household, the family members inside the house. Builder can refer, the building can refer to the building, a physical building, or the household itself as well, the builder who's building it. And so the reality is it means both. When God is invoking the word house, he means the physical house that's being built, the temple. But even bigger than that is the microcosm of the entire earth that God built. But he also means the household because we are partners in the household. We are part of the family. And Moses wasn't just faithful in creation. He was faithful in the household of Israel that God called him to be a part of. And so the first thing he makes is, see how he's building now. Now, if you just jumped into chapter 3, you would think, wait a minute. How do I know that Jesus is the builder? Why does he just assume that Jesus is the builder? That doesn't prove that he's greater than Moses. He just made that all up. But if you read chapter 1 and chapter 2, then you know he's already made the argument that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the creator of the entire universe. He is the radiance of God's glory. He sits on the right hand of God. Therefore, He is the builder. So you already know now, it's already been proven to you that Jesus is the builder. Now He's just pointing out and reminding you, Moses wasn't a builder. Moses was a faithful servant in the house that God built. But nowhere ever in the Bible is God seen in Genesis as saying, let there be light. Let there be... Nowhere does Moses ever say, I brought you out of Egypt and I have adopted you as my son. God did. Moses didn't. And he just proved to you in chapter 1 that Jesus is God. Therefore, Jesus is the builder. And Moses is faithful in the house, but Jesus is faithful over the house. So the major way that Jesus is superior to Moses is he doesn't have to degrade Moses' faithfulness. He just has to show you that Jesus is faithful over more. Now, this isn't even a quantitative statement where Jesus was faithful in more things than Moses. It's a qualitative thing in that his position is greater than Moses. And it's important too, he's not trying to make the argument that Moses is faithful in 101 things, but Jesus is faithful in 105 things. If Moses lived a little bit longer, maybe he could have caught up with Jesus. The point is that Jesus has a greater position. And that's the most important fact. It's not that Moses is not great. It's not that Moses wasn't faithful. It's that Jesus' position is greater because he's over the house. Therefore, he deserves greater honor than the house itself. Nobody goes to a painting or a house and says, Wow, that's really amazing house. Can you see how amazing that house is that it put itself together? Usually we admire the beauty and think, wow, I wish I had the talent of the artist. Wow, look at how intelligent that they are that they were able to design that kind of an airplane. That's what we admire, 
is the creativity, the creator. We admire the art and the beauty, but we ultimately are thinking, I'd be so cool if I could do something like that. And that's Jesus. Jesus deserves greater honor because he is the creative creator who built everything, and Moses is merely in the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And so he's reminding you that Jesus is God, and Jesus is the builder of all things. Now Moses is faithful in God's house as a servant to testify the things that would be spoken. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. We are his house. And so Moses, once again, he's just repeating it. Now why is he repeating it? Because repetition is the hallmark of all Jewish literature. And you're talking to a bunch of Jews who have had it in their head that there's nothing greater than Moses. So he's going to keep saying it in different ways over and over again so that it's in your head. Jesus is the builder. Moses is not. Jesus is the builder. Moses is not. Jesus is the builder. And they already know this, but we're talking about a Jesus that they crucified, a Jesus that the culture won't accept, a Jesus who was the light of the world and came to the darkness, but the darkness did not recognize nor receive the light. And he's trying to remind them, if you've been paying attention, you have to accept the fact that Jesus is greater than Moses. And this is one of the points that the Gospels are doing. If you look at the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's writing to the Jews, and he starts with the exact same way. Jesus is born. He has a miraculous birth, just like Moses. He's hidden away, just like Moses. He has to flee the country, just like Moses. He's brought back. They try to kill the baby boys, just like Moses. And then he um, comes up back out of the... He goes through the wilderness, just like Moses. And then he comes and he gives a sermon on the mount, just like Moses gave the law on the mountain. And so the author is intentionally making the point that, look, the Messiah is here. The one that looks like Moses is here. But at the same time, he's the son of God, unlike Moses. He has a virgin birth, unlike Moses. And he keeps doing all these things where Jesus is greater, unlike Moses. And so he's trying to emphasize this part. Because Moses was to be the typological prophet, the typological Messiah that they were to be looking for. So here's the question. Which is greater, the servant or the son? Would you much rather have a message from the servant in the house? Or would you much rather have a message from the son over the house? And if you follow the argument that Jesus is God, then the ultimate conclusion is that Moses is not the greatest. Jesus is better. And that's the point that he's making here. Therefore, once again, the emphasis here is on the fact if Jesus is better than Moses. Then Jesus' covenant is better than Moses' covenant. He's going to keep hitting this from every angle. If Jesus is better than the angels, then his covenant is better than the angels. If Jesus is better than Moses, then his covenant is better than Moses' covenant. He wants to keep emphasizing this because this is the ultimate goal. The ultimate climax is Jesus' covenant is better. That's what he's doing with it. And he's knocking these all off. Now, he concludes with this. So, Moses was a servant in the household. There's no doubt that he was a part of the household of God. 
Jesus is a servant or a faithful builder over the house. That's been proven. So the question is, if Jesus is better, then how do I become a part of this household? He's already made that point. If we hold on to our confession that Jesus is the Son of God, the God-man, King and High Priest, who is those seven points, that's how we become part of the household. We are of the household, verse 6, if, in fact, we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope we take pride in. Now, this is important. It's not just enough to confess these things. He makes it very clear that you are part of the household if, this is a conditional statement, you hold firmly to the hope. That's continuous action. Which means confession is not a one-time thing. It's something that you continually have to hold on to. Now, the author is not saying that you are saved and you can lose your salvation or that you're never sure and all that kind of stuff. Although there are some people who argue that, but the scripture is overwhelming that once saved, always saved. And we're, and what I would ask you right now is just kind of hold on to this. If there's any doubts, if there's any questions, just hold on to it because chapter six is where this is really going to get unpacked. And I don't want to unpack it here because we're, the author's not ready for that. He's just throwing this little thing out. And he's really going to unpack it in six. And so six is going to be a lot of information, so let's just wait till we get to six. So, But right now, what the author has in mind, and this is not an uncommon theme in the Bible, and we'll really hit this hard, is true believers persevere. This is the point that James is making. If you truly say you're saved, then where are your works? Not that works save you, but if you're truly saved, then there should be fruit in your life. And not that we go around comparing our fruit to each other. There just should be some fruit. But the other thing that the Bible is going to make the point is true believers persevere. Not that persevering earns your salvation. But if you truly are saved, the Holy Spirit will enable you to persevere. And if you can't persevere, then you must have never been saved because God always finishes the work that He began in you. And if the work doesn't get finished, then it must have never begun. And that's a very important idea. It's not that works save you. Persevering does not earn you the gold medal at the end, and that's when you get your soul to salvation. But that if you truly, truly are saved, and the Holy Spirit truly is working in you, there should be changes in your life happening. There should be transformation. There should be renewing. There should be fruit. I think that's a little bit more common for people. We talk about that more. But the author of James and Peter and Paul and Hebrews are going to constantly make the point too that if God really truly does finish the work that He began in you, and if He really truly is the one that nothing can separate us from Him, if we are truly sealed in the Holy Spirit, then those who finished the race are believers. Because if the Holy Spirit went into them and sealed them, and nothing can change that, then the Holy Spirit will enable you to finish the race. Therefore, if you don't finish the race, then there was nothing in you to begin with. Now, once again, 
If you don't like that, if that doesn't make sense, then just hold on to it because six is really going to hit it face on. But that's kind of the hint that he's laying here. But here's the other thing he makes very clear. We must understand that the Bible has two kinds of salvations in mind. And I don't mean, this is not heretical. There is a salvation from and a salvation to. There are many people who are saved from a past lifestyle. They, they, they realize that that lifestyle is not right. They don't want to be a part of it anymore. They're really excited about things. Things are changed. Anybody can do that. Any non-believer can have a salvation from. There are lots of non-believers who say, I used to be an alcoholic. There's lots of non-believers who say, I used to swear all the time and hang out with these bad people. There's lots of non-believers who said, I used to scream and yell and verbally abuse my wife all the time. Lots of people have been saved from things. But for the Bible, it's not just enough to be saved from. You have to be saved to as well. Many people just stop that or they replace it with something else. But the Bible makes it very clear, it's not just enough to walk away from a past lifestyle, you must walk towards and into a confession of a real, true relationship with God. And unfortunately in our culture, sometimes we have confused a being a saved from as a be saying to. And then when they don't finish the race, we wonder what happened. Now it's still a legitimate question, but it's not a failing on God's part. It's not bad theology. What the Bible has in mind is a transitory faith. That there is a moment where you're transitioning from and to, and just because you're coming from doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit has necessarily indwelt yet. But once you've come to, then He's there. And I am convinced that neither life nor death nor heaven nor hell nor anything above or below can separate me from the love of God because there is no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. And he who began to work in you is faithful to finish it until the end. And that's where the author is going to. Now, why does he say that? Because, once again, this is the beauty of the Bible. The Bible is cram-packed of these spiritual theological truths. And we're used to getting that a lot in the New Testament. But the beauty of it is that every single one of those truths have a very real story behind it that was dealt with in the First Testament. The First Testament is all these real Ideas, And the New Testament gives you the spiritual theology behind it. And so where is he going next? He's going to go into the wilderness generation that you should have read in chapter 14 of Numbers. And they're a perfect example of people who were saved from Egypt, but they were not saved to the promised land. And that's where he's going. And what he's warning is, please, 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 do not be a saved from and stop there. You must also be a saved to. And that's the ultimate goal. Don't just stop being the bad person. If you want a behaviorism, then go join any religion. If you just want better behavior from bad behavior, then go join any religion. They all teach good behavior. But if you want something to save too, that's just truly amazing, then Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And that's where we're going. So please, if you have any questions, feel free to ask me that kind of stuff. But we're going to dive into from and to big time in chapter 6. So I'm not saying it's not important. I'm just saying if you can just hold on for a little bit um, or a couple weeks, (laughs) then we'll get there.
And so this is the point that he's making. Jesus is better. And if you want to be a part of this household, then you must hold on to your confession. But also the hope. Now, this is important too. The hope that we take pride in. We're not taking pride in ourselves. We're not taking pride in our works. We're not taking pride in our discovery of Jesus. Sometimes I think as Christians, we take a little pride that we have found Jesus and others have not. And that somehow makes us part of a special club. We take pride in our hope. Now the important thing too is whenever you see hope, hope in the Bible is never used focusing on the subject. So where I hope, hope is never used where the focus is on me, on my hoping. Every single time in the Bible that you see hope, it's always focusing on the object, of the thing that you hope in. And that's very important here. It's not that I have to keep hoping. It's that Jesus is such a superior object to all other things that I can't help but find greater hope in Him than anything else. And the object is Jesus, and that's what I hold on to. That's what I hope in. Now, if you want a good definition of hope, it's this. Hope is not wishful thinking. Like, I really hope Ohio State wins. Hope is desire plus expectancy based on a very real objective promise. Yes. Hope is that I desire something to happen because I expect it to happen because of a promise that was given to me. I desire plus expectancy based on a promise that's outside of myself. Now, here's the important part of it. So I watch these TV shows, right? And I've been noticing a lot more recently. There's a lot of spiritual themes that are starting to pop up in TV shows now because Hollywood's no longer atheistic. They're all spiritual now. If you've ever paid attention to the movies and TV shows out there, they may not be like Yahweh spiritual, but they're all spiritual. So I was watching this TV show, and all these, so it's like a post-apocalyptic kind of a world where everybody's died because of a virus, and there's only a few survivors and that kind of stuff. And so there's this talk of this city of light out there somewhere in the world that completely survived it all. And there's, it's a utopian city that life is horrible right now. Everybody's just killing everybody because there's no government and everything's falling apart and people are desperately, it's survival of the fittest. But there's a city out there somewhere in the world and there's all these clues lighting us there and, and everything's good. And people are like, how do you know it's there? And people are like, because I have faith. And then so I'm like, What? You do, well, what is that faith based on? Nothing. I just have faith. There's got to be something out there. Or there's the enemy, and they're invading the enemy camp. And there's one guy. They know they need an inside guy inside the camp, and that's the only way they can bring down the shields or something like that. And so they send this one guy in, and they're like, well, how, what if it doesn't happen? What if he can't do it? He will. He'll do it. Well, how do you know? Because I believe. I believe he can do it. Oh, yeah. Because belief is enough to make Every bad thing that could possibly happen, not happen. 
but this is starting to, I, it's probably, I don't know if it's always been there, but it really seems really prevalent all over the place now. And the world's definition is just, if I faith, if I believe, then it must happen. And if I don't have enough faith, if I don't believe enough, then it's not going to happen. It's the prosperity gospel people who like, when you give a million dollars or you pray the prayer and the miracle doesn't happen, they're like, you didn't have enough faith. As if it was all based on me. Now there is some truth to that. Even Jesus said that. But, but at the same time, Jesus said you have to have faith in the promises that he gave you. Because faith is based on a very real promise. Hope is based on... A, I can't have faith that you'll be healed of cancer unless God objectively spoke to me that you will be healed of cancer and I tested that spirit and found it to truly be God, then I can have faith. And that's what we must understand, that the real true promise is the object of Jesus Christ. And that is our hope. Not because we just hope, not just because we have faith, not just because we believe, but because our faith and our belief and our hope is rooted in a concrete, objective promise of who Jesus is and what he said. And that's what we can take to the bank because God has proven himself worthy and trustworthy over the years. Yes? Exactly. It's just, it's, it's based on nothing. And so this is so important. This is the beauty of the Bible. It is faith, but the faith is based on absolute objective reason and logic. God has absolutely revealed himself, objectively proven himself to be the Son of God, incarnate in his Son. That is reason. And now I place my faith that if he's been faithful to all of his promises in the past, then I know he'll be faithful to his promises in the future. And that is faith. That is hope. It's faith and reason together. And neither one can survive without the other. Because even Jesus said, don't place your hope and faith in me because I feel good to you. No warrior goes into a battle against an enemy without first weighing the cost. Don't just blindly follow me. It must be based on something. And so the author has just made an incredible argument in the first chapter, two chapters, and now he's saying that's what you place your hope in. That's what you place your hope in. Any questions?